As you find your seat this morning and as we get started in uh, hearing from the Word, I'm going to ask you to turn right away to the text for the morning, which is 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. And you can follow however it is that you're reading Scripture these days in physical form or on your mobile device. But I would encourage you to find 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul here is writing to the church in Corinth, uh, a church that thinks very highly of itself and has been bestowed with an awful lot of gifts. He'll let us know. But a church that thinks so highly of itself and has been bestowed with these gifts that the gifts are only being used for individual purposes and for themselves, not for the benefit even of the people, let alone to the glory of God outside of the church, that those gifts would be let loose. And Paul addresses uh, uh, in what seems like a pretty normal greeting, salutation from the beginning, uh, but he slipped some things in there that we may not notice otherwise, and we're going to focus on just one of those here in a moment. Let's hear the text, though, this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, Paul, as I said, he, he's, he kind of pulls some things in there right away. One we're not going to focus on in verse 1 when he establishes that he's called to be an apostle. He's reestablishing his authority with the Corinthians who are doubting his authority. We're not going to get into that this morning. But in verse 2, what I would otherwise normally just say, oh yeah, that's a nice greeting, and move on to the, the text, you have highlighted up there the important word. It says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. He's saying the same thing twice, essentially, sanctified and holy people. Paul is basically going to point out, this is, the, this is the hope, this is the ideal, this is what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be the sanctified holy people, and you aren't. So let me help you rise to the occasion. Let me help you understand what's at stake here. And I want to focus our attention on that this morning. Sanctified, or to be sanctified, uh, is to be made holy, to be purified. And, and if something's holy, it's set apart. And it's particularly uh, if it's a thing or a person, it's set apart for a sacred use, for God's purposes. And when that happens, something fundamentally changes within that object. If it's sanctified, it becomes something new or something different from inside out. Paul's saying that's what's supposed to happen to you, church. And he's writing to the church at Corinth. But we can also take this and hear this as the church today. He's writing and he's saying, you are supposed to be the holy people. Something should have changed in you. So that the gifts that are given are used by all, not just by some and not just for some. That's where he's starting and the reasoning that, that stands behind it is, is the theme that we're going to see all through these four weeks of Advent. God's glory is what stands behind that. God's glory is simply God visibly seen or a manifestation of God or God's character on display. Somehow 
that which is sort of intangible is seen in some uh, uh, way that we can visualize. In the case of the church, the church is supposed to be a visible representation, at least in some part of God's glory, of who God is, right here in our midst. That's what's supposed to happen. And so the point that we should make today is that God's people are, t- are to be made holy so they reveal God's glory. That's what Paul's pointing them to, ultimately. You've got to be the holy people, the sanctified people, because that reveals who God is. That's why the gifts are there. They reveal what God is doing amongst his people and who he is. They reveal something about his character within you and how that's changing who you are, transforming you because you've said yes to Jesus Christ. That's what should happen amongst you. And, and part of that that Paul's getting at here is that they were supposed to become these transformed people as they eagerly await the return of the Lord. That's why they're the holy people. It's a, it's a preparation, if you will. And they're supposed to patiently do this. Now, I don't know about you, but I have three small kids, and when we had to define patience with kids, I don't know if you've ever done this. Uh, sometimes it needs to be defined with kids. And uh, over the years, we've basically just said that patience is waiting without constantly asking about the thing you're waiting for. That's what patience is. It's the classic, are we there yet scenario. No, we're not. That's, the car didn't stop. We're not there yet. But patience is exhibited in, you know, there's the excitement, sure. But you can ask once, maybe twice, but 16 times, that's not patience anymore, right? Patience needed to be exhibited on the part of the Corinthians, but because they don't have that, they're abusing the gifts that God gives. So here's the problem for the Corinthians. They weren't good at waiting. And because they weren't good at waiting, the gifts that God gives, instead of aiming them towards God's ultimate purpose in the return of the Lord, they aim them towards themselves so they get the benefit now, rather than waiting for the greater benefit to come. That's the problem. And the reward for those who are faithful, we're told throughout Scripture, is going to be huge. Bigger than we can imagine. Greater than than we can imagine and that we could experience in this life. And Paul, in verse 8, he points them to this, this patience, but why to be patient? He says, He, that's God, will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there you have a term that's familiar throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord. All throughout Scripture, this is an important and key concept. Paul is pointing to that same concept. In the Old Testament, you'll find it as the day or the day of the Lord. And I'm actually going to recommend to you uh, sometime later today, go to thebibleproject.com and look up day of the Lord. Excellent six-minute video that will give you the fullness. That's thebibleproject.com. I really recommend it. But what is the day of the Lord? Let me give you a physical example of what it may be like in simple terms. Uh, A a number of years ago, almost two decades ago now, I worked for a small Bible college in Colorado, in northern Colorado. And uh, it was just outside Fort Collins, halfway between Greeley and Fort Collins. It's where the the prairie ends, basically, and you can see the foothills. They're 20 minutes away. Uh, And it was one of those areas where the the mountains uh, really dictated your weather quite well. Uh, even though you could still just see them, you get to them quickly. And they, they would say, if you could smell Greeley, a storm is coming. And if you've ever been to Greeley, you know what I'm talking about. But the other thing that would happen sometimes uh, is that uh, in the late summer and early fall, you'd occasionally get, like they do kind of in the southwestern United States, a dust storm that would blow through. Uh, they weren't long. But you could stand at the window or stand outside, and you'd see a giant wall of dust, and you'd notice... The mountains aren't in view anymore to the west. 
all I see is a giant wall of dust coming straight towards me, and you'd want to get inside at that point. I don't know if you've ever experienced these, uh, but once they come through, 5 to 15 minutes, they're not long, uh, once it comes through, you know, you stand there, and the dust is blowing, and you can't see much, visibility is low, and you can imagine that if you're standing out in that, it would hurt, right, to be blasted around by that dust and dirt and sand. And you think to yourself, as you stand inside, wow, I'm glad I'm inside for this. There's the day of the Lord for you. In simple terms, the day of the Lord is in simple terms a day of judgment. A day when you're going to want to be standing on the inside, not the outside. That's the day of the Lord. When the storm comes in, because those that are with God who have said yes to Jesus Christ, when the day of the Lord comes, it's actually a welcome thing. And for those who haven't, it will be tremendously terrifying. They'll be on the outside when that judgment occurs. What's ultimately on that work, on, or at work on that day, is more than just simple judgment. It's the end of evil, is what it is. Uh, to put it in really scholarly terms, uh, a scholar Henry Dosker puts it this way. He says, The day of the Lord is, hang with me, the future consummation of the kingdom of God and the absolute cessation of all attacks upon it. That is to say, God's sovereignty and reign is fully and completely revealed and there's nothing standing against him anymore. All evil will be gone. Which means those who didn't put their, their, uh, their way with God, who didn't decide to walk in those paths of righteousness and say yes to Jesus Christ along the way, unfortunately end up on the outside, not the inside. Because there's a choice that comes upon us that we have to make. And on that day of the Lord, that's the final moment at which those who have said yes to Jesus will experience the glory, and those who haven't, unfortunately, miss out. To give a biblical picture of this, uh, they're all throughout, especially the prophets. Joel 3, you'll see verse 17 on the board here, but I'm going to read 14 to give you a running start. In Joel 3, it says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be, uh, will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. No evil force will come against those who are in Christ, his people, the people who are gathered in. Those are the holy, those are the sanctified. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, but what Israel had sort of physical markers to help them remember and live in a holy way throughout the Old Testament. You can see that when they were wandering in the desert, they had, that God gave them the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies in the middle where his Shekinah presence would dwell. And they were to build their camp. The one tribe took care of the tabernacle. The other 11 tribes built their camp around it. There's an image here coming up for you to see. Um, and it's very small, so you can get this online later if you want. The other 11 would build around the tabernacle. So when they wake up in the morning, what is it they see? That's where God's presence is, in the camp, with us. So when you read books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you get bored with the law, and you think, why do we need all this law? That law is given so that they recognize what holiness is. As long as you follow the law, walk in those paths of righteousness, you can live in the camp. 
And God gave uh, ways within the law that if they transgressed or stepped over that they could make some kind of restitution uh, or some kind of repentance could be done or cleansing could be done so they can stay in the camp because God says, my presence is here. So if you're in this camp, you've got to be holy in this camp. And if you're not, if you can't remain that way, guess where you've got to go? Outside the camp until you can fix the problem, until it can be fixed in one way or another. That's what's going on. So for, through and through in their daily life, Holiness as a concept is physically built in to their lives through the law, through God's presence with them and among them. And they recognize the consequences if they can't meet up with that holiness. It's that they have to be on the outside because God is holy. So Israel had to recognize God's holiness. It was built in or face the consequences. And Israel also consequently could more easily, theoretically, look towards the day of the Lord and say one day... One day we can hold this law perfectly and be in perfect communion with God and never have to go worry about going outside the camp. One day we, it'll be perfect communion with God. The veil will be torn or separated. There won't be this wall of separation anymore. God will be fully revealed. doesn't mean they always followed it, but it does mean it was built into their system so they could recognize holiness through and through, in and out, every day. We are in this season of Advent. We've talked about it a couple times in the service already. This, this mean, it means coming. Uh, that we recognize for these four weeks prior to Christmas the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, whether it's through the movies we watch or the advertising that's out there or just the way we've presented it in church, it could be all, any combination of those. Sometimes we get to this year, and, and I get a little concerned that we are only thinking historically I know I'm a historian, uh, so that's a weird thing to say, but we're only thinking historically of the baby Jesus that came 2,000 years ago. Wow, what a great event. Truly it was. Some of us might give a little more thought to it within the church context and say, but he came and he saved us, and that's a remarkable event. Any amens in the house? That's a remarkable event. But what we also need to recognize is that those events aren't the end of the story. We don't just celebrate the first advent, we celebrate the second advent, the return of Jesus Christ. And that calls something out of us here and now, today. When Jesus returns and the day of the Lord comes, a day of reckoning, it calls for a response from you and me, even now. Around the room right now, in this place, we have middle schoolers. I have the pleasure of teaching confirmation to our 7th and 8th graders. I absolutely love it. I, I co-teach it with Sherry Erickson. Um, and they do sermon notes. Some of you experienced that when you went through confirmation. The form's a little different now. I encourage you, if you really want to take sermon notes, grab one. They're always in the back. You can take sermon notes. We just changed the form two weeks ago because they asked me to. They said, it's been a while. We don't like the form. And I agreed with them. So we changed it around. And the last question on the form now, and you can even look around and see a middle schooler probably taking sermon notes, and I'm curious to see what they'll do with this when I read them later. The last question says, what is one follow-up question you would ask the pastor about this message? It's a good question, I think. I came up with it. That's why I think so. <laughs> but it's fun to interact that way. One student, uh, I've had some good submissions. One student, though, last week, when we talked a little bit about this tabernacle, uh, they stated this. The Hebrews made God the center of their life by building their camp around the tabernacle. How can we make God the center of our lives? It's a good question, isn't it? 
as we consider that, let's remember again, we were talking about 1 Corinthians, uh, and, and the point we're making today is that God's people are to be made holy so they reveal God's glory. So this is a good question to kind of get into what that would look like, that, that we're supposed to be a holy people, a sanctified people. How do we organize our lives in that way? I don't think I'll give you every bit of an answer to that question, but I think we can point in the right direction here as we think about what Paul says to the Corinthians. You see, the problem is sometimes we have the Corinthian problem. We stink at waiting well. We're really not that good at it. Um, and the reward. Sometimes we forget about how good the reward's going to be for those who are sanctified, who are in Christ. And on that day, the day of the Lord, when we get to glimpse the glory of the Lord, there are a couple different things that could happen. And let me give you a, a, an example thought for that. When we first moved here uh, a little over four years ago, uh, our youngest son was two, and I remember taking a walk with him. He was, as most little boys are, into fire trucks. They're the coolest things ever. He loved them. He talked about fire trucks, watched them, whatever we could. And we live close to one of the fire stations, so we took a walk around the block. He's in his stroller, two-year-old, and uh, the, the garage door is open at the fire station, and you can see the engine right there. And I turn him towards the fire station and towards the, the door, and I say, Hey, the, the garage door is open. The fire truck's there. Do you want to go up and see it? And his eyes are huge, and he's like, no, I don't want to go see it. Because to a two-year-old in a stroller, that fire truck is massive, right? I mean, it just looked huge to him. There's no way I'm going to go up to that thing. On the day of the Lord, we're going to get a glimpse of just how big God's glory is, which we don't really have the capacity to understand now. We can get a glimpse of it. And on that day... I want to experience awe that God's glory is bigger than I could even imagine. But I've kind of been catching a glimpse of that rather than fear. That I never had a clue. That I, I never took part in even trying to understand God's glory. And now I don't get to experience any of it. That's the difference that we could experience on that day. And the waiting part of this, as God's people, should be the preparation to begin to experience God's glory together now. So absolutely we're going to be wide-eyed on that day. We better be wide-eyed on that day. But we be wide-eyed out of awe because of how great God is and we recognize it. That's the hope that we should have. And it boggles my mind that I've talked to people over the years who believe, and, and a lot of people around us believe, our coworkers and friends and neighbors and family members believe that, that some God exists and some God had a hand in creating this world. But in the same breath, they'll say, but I don't really care to know him. And it, it boggles my mind that that's the attitude we have to this God of great glory who could engineer such a thing that we're living in now as this world. We should organize our lives around God's ways from in to out so that we can recognize God's glory now and, and live in to God's glory to come. And so by default, I want to point this out as we just give two thoughts from Corinthians. By default, I would suggest to you that we, we all live in what I would call sort of common or ordinary time. Our day-to-day -day lives, we could do some remarkable things, but by and large, they're fairly mundane. And they don't seem very sacred. 
So how would we take our individual and everyday lives to orient our lives as the Israelites did to live there and put their camp around the tabernacle? How do we organize our lives to turn our time now into sacred time for God, for God's glory, for God's purposes, for the kingdom even today? Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 points out something we should know, church. He says this, Therefore, you, and the you here is the church, okay, so it's not just individuals. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. There is no scarcity among us of God's goodness and his giftedness among his people. God has provided everything we need to succeed as his people. And if God's gifts are given for God's glory, then they need to be used. And they need to be used among his people for his purposes. Well, Paul points out two things that are kind of bullet points here, but he'll get into more deeply later in the letter. But he points out in verse 5 that our speech, our speech is one of those things where God has, has gifted us as his people. And I would point out to you, any speech that comes directly from God will edify his church. So a word of prophecy or the word from the Lord will edify his church. That would be to encourage. It could also come with challenge. That's included in the word edify. But if we receive a word from the Lord, it's going it's to aim us towards God, not away from God. Furthermore, what that means uh, within God's people is that if we've been gifted with this speech, even if it's not directly from the Lord, as we operate with one another, because the Holy Spirit is present among us, any word that we have with one another should it should edify his church. Now, we're not always going to meet the mark on this. Some days we won't, in fact. Some days I haven't. But that's the goal. We should edify his church, pointing, uh, pointing the church towards God and those who make up the church towards God and God's ways to become his holy people, not away from that. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, he points out, he says, Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Holy Spirit of, or by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, we've been gifted to orient ourselves in a Godward way for kingdom values, for kingdom purposes, to be his holy people. That's what God has given us. God's glory should be present among his people. We should get a glimpse of that even in our interactions with one another. Secondly, he talks about uh, the issue of knowledge that in verse 5 that we get this knowledge uh, that comes from God for his people. And again, he'll go into that later, but this is the unifying factor among God's people with those gifts. Because Paul continues on in 1 Corinthians 12, and he talks about some of these specific giftedness. He says now in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, and gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers... Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. That is to say, he's, it's more of the same evidence. He's given us what we need. Not just to be his people here, but to take that word out and reveal his glory. The apostles, those who do miracles, those who do healing, those kinds of things are the taking out of God's good news into the world. He's given us all that knowledge. And in our day of, of church hopping and church shopping that goes on, uh, we may not realize it, but um, when you choose a church, you might not like everybody that's there. And you might not always get along with everybody every day. 
In fact, if you're looking for a church where you're going to agree with everybody every time you're there, you'll never find it. Because quite honestly, I was thinking about this. I don't agree with myself all of the time. Anybody else have a conscience? <laughs> if you've got a conscience, you know what's going on, right? You're never going to find a place of perfect unanimity of thought. It just doesn't exist. That's why the Holy Spirit matters so much in bringing together a group of people. And we find a church as a group of people that we can live and die with, of a place where God's word is proclaimed and we can live it out, and that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're looking for in a church. God will gift us. Now, a win to God might not look like a win to us. That's not necessarily always going to be full seats and full offering plates. I don't think that's exactly what God's going after. God's not living in a poverty mindset. God has given us everything we need to succeed. We need to look at what God has given us, not what we think God has given us in order to succeed. That doesn't discount those things. They're significant. But I want to point this uh, second thing out. That, what we po- pointed out there with the gifts relates largely to us as a people. Let's think a little bit more as individuals here. Because I think this will get to the point of the individual nature of our question. How, do we or- how can we orient our lives uh, to make God the center of our lives? See, if we've been given the riches of God's grace... If we've said yes to Jesus Christ and we know what that salvation is like, then we need to call upon God to purify us. And if you haven't, you need to call on God to purify you. But what that means is a regular uh, dose of forgiveness and repentance in our lives so that we are his sanctified people. Imagine, if you will, uh, you're the kind of person that you wake up one morning and you have a habit of, this is not personal, by the way. Uh, uh, This is not my habit. You wake up every morning and your habit is going to the gym. Uh, You decide not to shower today. You're done at the gym. You put on a little extra deodorant uh, and you go to work. Eventually, somebody's going to notice. Now, imagine you do that for a full week, right? Eventually, somebody's going to notice, right? The, the, The power of the deodorant will not overpower the body odor, will it, at some point? And that's what it's like when sin just accumulates in our lives. Uh, You can try and do things to cover it up, but at some point, it's going to overpower what's going on. People will see it, and and it it will take a hold in a new way. So we need a regular dose of forgiveness and repentance. That is the washing clean, but then also turning from what got us there in the first place. And God gifts his people so they're prepared for his presence. That's why he gives the gifts. And we need to recognize that we've been given this great wealth from God through his spirit. Paul talks about it in verse 5. He says, um, For in him you have been enriched in every way. This word enriched, the the word behind it is the word from which we get plutocrat. That is somebody who who derives their power from their wealth. We have great power as God's people because of the wealth of the Holy Spirit living in us if we're his sanctified people. We have all that we need. But we need to make sure that we are living lives that reveal God's glory, that that live in communion with God in holiness. And what that means out of us is that if we're going to do that, sometimes we need to make uh, important decisions on what we do with things like our finances and our time and our attitudes and our relationships 
the center point of our lives should be God's presence with us. And that means some hard choices sometimes about how we're going to orient our lives. Just like Israel, they put the camp around the tabernacle. We need to do the same thing in our lives with everything we have built around God as the center point. I know in our family, uh, we had, really over the last year, we've, we've felt really overscheduled. And it's our own fault. We did it to ourselves. And we had to really sit down and say, okay, we've got to pare back. We've got to cut back on things because we're doing a lot of good things, even some great kingdom work and different things like that. But we need to make sure that we're not just doing those okay, but we're doing some things really well. And that we give ourselves the margin to, to have Sabbath and those kinds of things. And so we had to make choices. Even here, in my work here, I had to do the same thing with my schedule. I had an awful lot of things going on, and I said, but I, I don't know that I'm always getting the important things done because I have everything going on. So I redid my schedule to make sure, no, I have blocks for this and this and this and this and this and this, and that's when I do those things. I don't let other things interrupt me in those periods of time because otherwise we'll, we'll just be scattered. I tried to sanctify the time in that way. We need to make those choices if we're going to live in a way where we actually orient our lives around God's ways. The second thing I'd point out is back to the forgiveness and repentance piece. That needs to be a daily regimen. Because we live uh, ordinary common days, how do we turn those into sacred common, day, common days, or sacred days, excuse me, we hand them over to the Lord from the beginning. I've made a, a habit of, uh, and this is, because I shower every day, uh, when I get in the shower, I pray for forgiveness every morning. And I had about a two-week period of time just recently where I, it didn't happen. I felt the effect. I felt I'm missing something. The, the day was not the same. To take a moment, and maybe that's your morning commute, maybe it's sometime in your day, to just take a moment to hand the day over to the Lord and say, God, for this day, not only do I want to be cleansed of any way that I've stood in opposition to you, sin, I want to turn from anything I've done that would continue to put me in opposition to you. But today I want to be in your presence. And I want to commit this day to you that this is a sacred day where I look forward to the day of the Lord, that I'm your glory wherever I go, that the Spirit is working in me at my workplace, at school, wherever I go, to consecrate the day to the Lord. And I actually want to, as we close out, I want to challenge you with one of those two things. We'll, we'll go to prayer in a moment, but I, I want to challenge you. What would need to change in your life, even a small thing, that you could either reorient your life around God's priorities or that you can make each day sacred and consecrated for the Lord? Let's, let's go to prayer, and we'll take just a little bit of silence. I'll let you consider that as we start. Father, we sang this morning, your presence is heaven to me. May that be the case this morning. May we be the visible presence of your glory in this place. And may all of those churches in Lincoln who are preaching your good news this morning, who are gathered by your spirit, be a visible presence of your glory this morning. I know we'll take a moment, God, before we take communion, your supper, to pray for forgiveness. But right now I pray that you'd work on our hearts and give us the conviction in those areas of our lives that need to change.
even if it's a minor change, so that our hearts reflect your glory more and our lives reflect your glory more wherever we go. God, work in and through us that your glory would shine through our lives and through us as your people. This your church. We pray this in your name. Amen.